Welcome to the Royal Decree, a We Three Queens Productions podcast, where we discuss LGBTQIA plus matters, queer topics, current events, and interview people that are influential to the LGBTQIA plus community. Remember, be seen, be heard. Hello there. I hope you're enjoying the Red Show and that as you're enjoying some of the performances, you're getting a chance to head over to the website for AIDS Action Baltimore. Take some time to look at the great work that they do and recognize that as a nonprofit, they need all the financial support they can get. Please, if you're enjoying the performance and are able to, donate to AIDS Action Baltimore. Any contribution can help keep this important organization running and helping the community in the fight against HIV. Thank you. Now, we have a very special guest joining us for a brief chat about the future of HIV AIDS treatment and prevention. This man has not only shaped the way the HIV epidemic was confronted in the United States, but all over the world. We are very thankful that he was kind enough and able to carve out some time to speak with us about this important topic during a time in which he has been so very busy. Doctor, could you please introduce yourself to our viewers? <laughs> My name is Dr. Anthony S. Fauci, and I'm the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the National Institutes of Health. Well, thank you, Dr. Fauci, for joining us today. Uh, it's an honor to be speaking with you. Thank so, you. in the show today, we've talked about the history of HIV, uh, the HIV pandemic, uh, how it's called GRID, the discovery of the virus, and some of the treatments which have gotten better over the years. Can you, uh, with your finger on the pulse and your eye on the future of treatment and prevention, give us an idea of how things are looking today? How's the US been doing over the past few years regarding? rates of infection, things like that. Well, as you probably know, the extraordinary success story of all of this has been the development of therapies in combination now that you can get in one pill, or at the most two, but you certainly can get combination antiretrovirals in one pill that consistently now brings the level of virus to below tech detectable level in most people. That is critically important for two reasons. One. It saves the life and provides essentially a normal living pattern for the person who's being treated, but it also prevents that person from transmitting the virus to their sexual partner. That is treatment as prevention, but better known as undetectable equals untransmittable. That is a major, major advance in therapy that ranks up there with the therapeutic uh, successes of virtually any disease that's the really good news. The still sobering news from a more of a public health epidemiological standpoint is that we have about 38,000 new infections in the United States. That number has been stuck at around that for very long, for like 15, 12 to 15 years. We've really got to get it lower than that. And that is the thing that was the motivating force in the program that we started about 
a year ago, but it officially started in 2020. Um, and that is ending the HIV epidemic in the United States as an epidemiological phenomenon by diagnosing, treating, and preventing infections. And I believe that we can do that um, if we essentially engage the communities that are most intensively involved from the standpoint of incidence and prevalence. I mean, if you look at the United States, 13% of the population is African-American, 44% of the new infections are African-American, 65% of those are men who have sex with men, and 75% of them are individuals who are young uh, individuals, you know, between 18 and 40 years old. So we really need to be uh, attentive to how we may be able to prevent infection in those. So we got good news and sobering news. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, what do you, what obstacles do you think there are that are going to inhibit our ability to start heading in that direction? You know, some of it is still, and I, and it pains me to say this because it was very prevalent when I was, you know, when we were fighting the good fight in the early 1980s, but it's still there now, uh, is the stigma associated with HIV and in some regions of the country with just being a man who has sex with men. Um, it's the thing that we see why astoundingly there are over 3,000 counties in the United States and 48 counties plus the District of Columbia and San Juan, Puerto Rico account for more than 50% of all of the infections in the country. That's, that's stunning that that's the case. And if you look at the map of the country, there are seven states in the southern part of the nation where many of the infections are predominantly in the rural areas of the state. So that in Mississippi, instead of in Jackson, Mississippi, it's out in the rural area. And that's where you find the most stigma and the most difficulty in African-American gay men predominantly, but not just African-American, even white and Hispanic uh, Af uh, uh, men who have sex with men, of getting the kind of counseling that gets them to understand things like PrEP. I mean, PrEP is a spectacular ability, uh, a mechanism of avoiding infection. It's like 99% effective if you take the pill every day. Um, and yet some people, because of this, the, the disenfranchisement in society, they don't have access to counseling and understanding of the benefits of PrEP. They don't have the accessibility to get a prescription for PrEP. Those are the things we have to overcome because PrEP can really be life-saving. And I think that could go a long way in decreasing that number of 38,000 new infections each year, which is completely unacceptable in 2020. I mean, you could understand in 1989, 1990, but not in 2020. We should not be seeing 38,000 new infections. And uh, PrEP's been ar around for about eight years. I think it came out in 2012. Right. And you said it's been about 15 years where we've been stuck at 38,000? Right. With, with those kinds of numbers. Absolutely. You know, we, we can do it. I mean, it isn't, it's, it's not outside of our grasp to be able to do it. That's the frustrating thing about it, Gary, that you'd like to see if you don't have the tool, you know, back, I often refer people 
about why I encourage people to make use of the tools we have. You know, I started taking care of persons with HIV before we knew it was HIV in the summer and the fall of 1981. Okay, so that's 39 years that I've been doing this. And back then, we didn't have any tools. We had, we had nothing. We had band-aids for hemorrhages is what we had. We had some treatment for opportunistic infections, uh, some not as good as we have now, but we didn't have any of the things we did now. The fact that we have the tools now and we're not maximally utilizing them is very disturbing and, and in fact painful because you know you can do it. You know you have the tools to do it. We've just got to do it. We've got to implement, you know, all of a sudden implementation science becomes as important as, you know, the discovery science is to implement what you've already discovered. Now, you are somebody who has a, a very good ability to look at things on a global scale as well um, and recognize that a pandemic means the entire world. Is there any place in the world that is getting it right? You know, I think to some respects, we're getting it right for the reasons that I mentioned, but we still have a ways to go. I don't think there is any country that um, has got it perfect the way we think we should have it, where they are essentially ending the epidemic, no infections perinatally, decrease the deaths dramatically because you get infected people on therapy and diagnosing and preventing infections like we have never done before. We can do it. I mean, that's the, the, the thing. And that's the reason why we have that program ending the epidemic as we know it. We can do it. I mean, if, if again, you have to compare it to a time when you didn't have the tools. You could say, hey, you know, I'd like to end this damn thing, but I don't have the tools to do it. Now we have the tools to do it. So we can end it. We can end it in the United States and we can end it in other countries. So I've heard you speak before, and I think during that, uh, you actually said that a vaccine would be the, the nail in the coffin when it comes to this whole. Right. Um, this top, today we're not talking about COVID. However, do you think that uh, some of the race for a vaccine for COVID has educated us in ways that we might be able to apply to looking for a vaccine for HIV? You know, Gary, I'd like to say yes, but the answer is no. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Darn it. <laughs> the, the answer is no, is because, you know, one of the obstacles about a, a vaccine for HIV is that for reasons that are very complicated, and many of which we don't even fully understand, the body does not make an adequate immune response against HIV. It just doesn't. We know that because when even people get infected, they don't get a broadly neutralizing antibody until the virus has been replicating in them for about two years of constant virus replication. By that time, even though they have broadly neutralizing antibody, it isn't broadly neutralizing against the virus that's in their body. So the body has already shown us that it has really a tough time to making good protective responses against HIV. If you look at any other infection, even the infections in which there's a considerable degree of morbidity and mortality, smallpox, measles, polio, ultimately, most of the people who get infected with those viruses recover. They clear the virus from the body and they're protected 
from subsequent exposure. So the body has already done what we call a proof of concept. It's proven to us that it is capable of handling that virus. And so when you want to make a vaccine against measles, polio, smallpox, you know you can do it because the body has already done it. Not with HIV and with COVID-19, we know people recover from SARS-CoV-2. Most of the people do recover. So we know the body is capable of making an immune response. So that's why I can look you in the eye and say, I will almost guarantee you, I can't tell you how effective it will be, but I will almost guarantee you that we will have a vaccine against SARS-CoV-2 before we have a vaccine against HIV for the reasons that I just mentioned. I didn't know if any of the like RNA vaccines and things like that, that haven't, that we were like forcing ourselves to try, had it might have had any hope, but thank you for dashing my hope, sir. No, 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 actually, <laughs> let, me, let me undash it for a moment, Gary. Ah. <laughs> I'll, I'll undash it. I'll undash it because we may utilize some of the platforms that are being shown to be effective in COVID to help us to get that immune response. So if that's what you meant, that could be helpful to us, that we get such a good response with an mRNA that we find out that we can stick the gene of the trimer envelope into an mRNA and get a better response. That's entirely conceivable. Okay. Entirely conceivable. Thank you for undashing. Uh, (laughs) And with that kind of innovation, um, I know that there have been some other recent things. I, I work in stem cell collection. I know that recently there was the London study uh, that was using allogeneic stem cells to treat an HIV patient. And that so far, I think it's about 30 months or more uh, that it was looking successful. Do you think that that is um, a glimpse at a realistic treatment for HIV? Well, if you're trying to cure someone, a realistic treatment is what we already have, one pill a day, boom, and you're good. If you want to be without antiretroviral therapy, you've always got to balance the risk versus the benefit of the treatment. And allogeneic stem cells is not a trivial approach that is not without risks and is also very expensive and is risky. So if you want to have a cure for someone, you want to make sure the cure is not worse than the disease itself. So yes, we're always trying to cure people, but we should feel fortunate that we have therapies that a pill a day could do it. Absolutely. And I know you are very, very busy these days. So I'll I'll wrap it up with one last question. Um, And thank you. You've been so kind, so informative. And my pleasure. I appreciate it. Uh, As you are looking to the future, where do you see us heading in the fight in, say, 10 years? Do you think that it is realistic for us to be heading down that path of eliminating HIV and AIDS um, 10 years from now? I do. I do. And I think we're going to show it because I think we can be successful in the United States of the plan of ending the epidemic by 2030. I do believe that if we all pull together, we get people who are at risk on PrEP, 
we get that 30,000, 38,000 down to 3,000. If we do that, I'd love to have another conversation with you again and we could talk about it. I think I'll be around in 3030. So. <laughs> well, I, I, hear you're, I hear you're running three and a half miles a day these days. So. I do. I do. So keep that up and I'm sure we'll, we'll, we, we could do that in, in about 10 years. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good, Gary. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Royal Decree, a We Three Queens Productions podcast. Intro and outro music by Joshua Snively. Check out our website at www.we3queens.com. That's we, T-H-R-3-E, queens.com. For all of our upcoming events and links to our social media. Be sure to subscribe and tune in for our next podcast. Remember... Be seen, be heard, see ya!